Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. So today Jesus goes up a mountain and he sits down because in the ancient world, the teacher sat and the disciples stood around them. And so Jesus goes up a mountain in Matthew chapter, chapter 5 because Matthew sees him as the new Moses leading an exodus not out of slavery in Egypt, but leading an exodus out of slavery to sin in this world into the kingdom of God. Because if you remember last week, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. And I think I commented on the different dimensions of the kingdom of God, uh, the Christological dimension, that it is Christ himself who is the kingdom of God, the mystical dimension, the idea that in the kingdom, two worlds are, are together, heaven and earth, the marriage of heaven and earth, and then the ecclesial uh, part of the kingdom of God, the ecclesial dimension. And that is that heaven is somehow present with the world in the church, in the sinfulness of the church, and the grace of the church, heaven and earth together. And so why is this significant for Christians? It's because if God is God and God is our Father, a God who is Father has to keep his promises. And you, will, if you remember, and you probably do, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, do you remember that God makes three promises to Abraham? He says, you'll have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. You'll have a land that is your own. And the third is you'll be a blessing on all peoples. So isn't it significant that in his first major discourse, his first major teaching, Jesus sets out to fulfill his Father's promises. Blessed are you, um, the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the clean of heart. And then all the blessings are something about how you participate in the life of Christ, how you live in the mystical life of the Christian, and what the mission of the church is. Because the mission of the church is the kingdom of heaven. And so when you think of the old law, uh, the Mosaic law, which was so much about behaviors, what you do and what you don't do, um, the externalities, the Sermon on the Mount is about externalities, like being persecuted, but it's more about uh, the internal dimension of poverty of spirit and uh, meekness and clean of heart. Uh, the Beatitudes reveal this divine path and purpose in our lives. And this is the teaching of Christ. In chapters 5, 6, and 7 are about the Sermon on the Mount. But the rest of Matthew is like footnotes to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to point that out in the second part of Oral Valley Catholic, because we should all be striving for these blessings that Christ has talked about and preached in the Sermon on the Mount. It is his law, it's the law of the church, to be poor in spirit, meek, clean of heart, to be merciful and makers of peace, to seek righteousness that comes from living the law of the kingdom. What if the next time you went to confession, you just took the Sermon on the Mount 
and you try to understand it and recognize all the ways that you do live it and then the ways, regrettably, that none of us do. Well, might be a wonderful experience of confession and mercy. Why? Because blessed are the merciful, um, or theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the path that the Lord sets before us today is one of trial and persecution, of being poor in spirit and meek and mournful, but also to receive great blessings. If you've fallen into a pit, probably you need some help to get out. Some directions would be helpful. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount provides. So let's turn now to Matthew's text on the Sermon on the Mount, starting at chapter 5, verse 1. You know, when we talk about the blessing of Abraham, remember that in Matthew's genealogy, he starts with Abraham because the New Testament fulfills the Old. The Old Testament may be a story without an ending, but the New Testament says that the goal of this life is God's kingdom. It starts here on earth, but it, uh, it's completed only in God's presence uh, in heaven. And so if you remember, John the Baptist came preaching, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the bulldozers finally arrive, and Jesus describes what the pathway of God looks like. It's really in John's gospel that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it's Matthew's Sermon on the Mount that describes what that way looks like. And in the end, it's really Christological, a description of Christ, and our call, and the call to all disciples uh, to imitate Christ. Uh, Christ is the light shining in the darkness. Uh, that'll actually be next week's uh, gospel because the Sermon on the Mount is about shining a light into the pit that we can live on in between our two ears. Well, Christ makes exiting that pit, uh, following him into the kingdom of heaven possible because of the grace of his presence the mystical support he gives us through grace, and then the assistance of the church in the preaching of the gospel, uh, the way of life, and the sacraments. Uh, I recognize that many people uh, sometimes mourn uh, what's happening in their lives, especially with kids that wander away from the faith or struggle with it. But as you go through these different blessings in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, take some time to think about how this way assists you in witnessing to all of those in your life that could benefit from uh, following Christ, the life of grace. And so let's begin with the Beatitudes. Um, makarios is the Greek word, and it essentially means you live in a blessed state. You're in a happy place. You know, if you just think that life all ends in death, and everything that we take so seriously, and it does have a certain gravity to it, but not ultimately, because it's death that puts all of our life uh, into the proper perspective, helps us overcome anxieties, uh, recognize what it is that we really own, and all we ever really have is our relationship with God. And so it starts out with the first blessing, the first Makarios, 
The first, I'm living in a blessed state when I'm poor in spirit. Because Jesus says that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So even to follow him into that homily from last week about Jesus saying, change how you think, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So changing how you think, metanoia, going beyond where your mind is, takes you directly into the contemplation of these uh, blessings. And so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Uh, Luke just says poor, but I don't think that Christ means that there's a blessing to destitution and not having enough to eat. I think what the Sermon on the Mount and why Matthew says poor in spirit, and it is the first gospel written, is it's talking about detachment. How it is that the things we have in our life can own us instead of us owning them. And so how it is that we take care of our body, how we have our various possessions and relationships in the right position. Do you remember the story of the rich young man that comes to Jesus? It's in Matthew chapter 19, and it is about being poor in spirit. Do you remember he has all this stuff, and he keeps all the commandments. He does the Mosaic law, but he's not fulfilled. And so Christ says, uh, give all you have, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That's poor in spirit, to be like Christ. It's, it's what the great... Uh, impulses for the religious life and taking these vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience is to try to follow Christ as poor in spirit. But it's also you in your marriage state or you as you're pre preparing for and hoping for marriage, this sense that your, your marital um, relationship is not about self-gratification. Uh, that marriage, the good of marriage is for the good of your spouse and the procreation and the education of children. It is an experience of religious life that the way the church teaches it. And so the rich young man wanders away because he cannot be detached from his material blessings. And so when Christ teaches in this like extreme demand on this young guy, remember that in leaving things behind, um, we do that to the extent that we can be detached from our concern for all these worldly possessions. And then the next part of the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are they who mourn for they will be comforted. You know, uh, that's an echo of Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, St. John the Baptist referred to that in his preaching. Comfort, comfort my people, it says in Isaiah 40. Because if you just think of the situation of Israel in that first century, so divided between the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, um, occupied by the Romans, um, but that this understanding that this emptiness they feel and what they hoped were the promises of Israel, that is the refoundation of the Davidic monarchy, that God had something better for them. And so it's really linked to the sense of detachment, um, that the experience of emptiness we can have like reading the newspaper and wondering what's happening in the world around us, really reveals to this, uh, reveals to us our longing for communion with God. So what if you were to take all your anxieties around the, about the world and you were to recognize them as Christ would look at them, as that you mourn for what the world's become, left into the hands of sinful men, and you long for the kingdom of heaven. He says, don't worry. Your time's coming. You'll be comforted. 
You know, Jesus had the same experience in Matthew 23, verse 37, when he is weeping over the fate of Jerusalem. And remember, that's his last discourse. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is about the destruction of poor Jerusalem and what's going to happen to the Jewish people, Jesus' fellow Jews. And Jesus says as he laments and mourns over Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood on her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about his next coming, his second coming, when um, Jesus will come as promised into the world. And so uh, Jesus mourns because he's the image of the one who will be comforted by his triumph on the cross. If you believe in the crucifixion as salvific, when you look at Jesus on the cross, you're seeing a happy man, a blessed man, something beyond what our understanding of happiness is. But happiness is properly understood in God's world. And then it said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. And that really goes back to um, Exodus uh, 35. Uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Uh, because meekness is about strong people being gentle. And so God is omnipowerful and very gentle. Here's what it says in Exodus 34. So the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord of God of gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and fidelity, continuing his love for a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet not declaring the guilty guiltless, but bringing punishment for their parents' wickedness on children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses at once knelt and bowed down to the ground. Oh, that the sins of the parents visited on the children. But God still is merciful and is there for his children. And so meekness is not a uh, virtue of the, of the weak. It's a virtue of the strong. It's someone who can dominate, who decides to be gentle. Um, and so uh, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the God that's walked out from amongst the Pharisees uh, raised people from the dead. Do you remember how he enters on uh, this colt, a foal of an ass? Um, he comes in meek and humble into Jerusalem. And Matthew says that this is to fulfill um, what, uh, what was said for the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, behold, your king comes to you, meek and riding on an ass and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so it's one more example of the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom of heaven, heaven having this Christological dimension, uh, being poor in spirit or meek or mourning are descriptions of Christ's ministry on this earth that we're asked to join into. And then the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And these two blessings, this blessed state, goes together. It's this understanding that things aren't right. And God will come and make things right. This is the Christian belief. We work for justice, justice in our families and our friendships, 
social justice, justice in our communities, about how decisions are made, who's cared for in decision-making. They're the very concerns that I think everybody who's a citizen in the country has. Um, but that the idea of recognizing that things are screwed up, that they're not what I want them to be because they're not what God might want them to be, and we hope that our will is God's will, but that to be merciful to others even though we understand that justice is not being fulfilled, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's Jesus walking through Israel, looking at how screwed up things are, and still forgiving sins, still raising the dead from the grave. This is, the, again, the Christological dimension of the kingdom of heaven. But it's also the interior disposition of the believer as they recognize the desire the call of justice but extend mercy to those people in our life who just don't meet that standard because it jesus says neither do we and that's why when we show mercy we will be shown mercy and i do think that it's right to point out again as often i do that hell is the place where there's only justice and no mercy heaven is the place where there is justice and mercy how important it is that we strive for this. I, if I fear for my country, it's that I see it obsessed with different people's idea of what justice looks like, but very little mercy or concern for other people. And it's maybe on the wrong road for that fundamental reason, in my estimation. But anyway, the next part of the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Um, Jesus said, uh, well, this is again this, this um, beatitude. Um, Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness having courage. And here's what he says. And this is in Matthew 10, 26. Therefore, do not be afraid of them. And he's talking about the people who persecute you because you're preaching the Christian message. But you get persecuted for lots of reasons of righteousness uh, in the world. He said, nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be made known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaimed on the housetops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of those who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And that's the satanic, um, the power of violence to try and force um, what can only be uh, drawn out uh, by people's desire for the good. And so this understanding of the hunger and thirst for righteousness and mercy, remember Jesus says in Matthew 22 um, that we're supposed to love one another. And Jesus tells parables about the lack of mercy in Matthew. Do you remember in chapter 18, he tells the story of the unmerciful servant who gets a break from his boss, but then goes out and beats the other servants. So he's given us a, a vision of what hell looks like compared to the way of, of the kingdom of heaven that is proposed to us in chapter 5 of Matthew. Then as we come to the end of the, um, of the uh, Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. That's a mystical statement. Um, to have purity of heart, to just have want what God wants. Um, God will <clears throat> reveal himself to you. 
Look at the lives of the saints, how St. Teresa of Avila experienced God, um, or St. Therese of Lisieux, or Blessed Solanus Casey. And then the Beatitudes go on, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And if you think of the clean of heart and peace, the, there can only be peace and justice, but there can only be justice through mercy because you can't compel people's immediate adoption of the gospel. All of us are on a path going from our sinfulness uh, to try to living the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, it's not just the Christological dimension of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just listen to the stories of the disciples and uh, what they don't get. Because what the disciples are telling you about their own failure to recognize Jesus or uh, to live these different beatitudes, uh, what you're seeing is something about how God's grace, God's work um, impacts the human soul. You can walk down the road with Jesus and still not be clean of heart. You can walk down the road of Jesus and you're still arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which is also this rejection on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus is an example. Jesus tells us. Jesus does everything to explain to us how it is that we receive the blessing through Abraham. Uh, but here we are, friends, listening to another episode of Oral Valley Catholic, as once again we try to bring ourselves to God. And so the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew ends with another uh, appeal to righteousness. And it's, um, blessed are you when you are persecuted uh, in the name of Christ, when you're persecuted for righteousness. And who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself, crucified, uh, pinioned to a cross, mocked and jeered. And if you believe the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling you that it's the life of the martyr, the one who gives his life uh, is at peace with God um, because you have accepted God's will and rejoiced in God's will. Think of all the little martyrdoms in your life, all the times each of us fear about the future because God may ask us to do something that we really don't want to do. We understand it at a human level, but Christ is calling us to transcend, to see the Christological dimension of our life, how Christ suffers in us, to see the mystical aspect of our life, how we join our sufferings to Christ as we endure just life in this world, uh, which sometimes is so joyful and so pleasurable, but other times has suffering and pain. And then how it is that we bring that to the church and hopefully find the support uh, that that dimension of the kingdom of heaven can bring into all of our lives. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, as I've said before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so what's that way look like? It's to be poor in spirit. It's to mourn. It's to be clean of heart. It's to be persecuted. It's to be uh, merciful. It's to be meek. All of these things are Jesus. And because they're Jesus, they're this interior pathway, this mystical pathway to union with God. And so I urge you to pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe open up the Bible next time you go to confession, maybe at our big Lenten penance service, and just go through the times you were 
not poor in spirit, the times you were not meek, the times you were not merciful. Hey, that's a confession Jesus himself would love to hear. So let's bring this to a conclusion in our final section of uh, this episode of Oro Valley Catholic. I'd like to offer you a way to think about how it is that you think about your faith and how you live your faith. You know, there's a part of us that's very rational. I keep saying it's the part where I wake up at three in the morning trying to figure things out, my head's spinning. Um, there's really a limit um, to our analytical capacity, what a philosopher might call dialectic, our ability to dissect and understand and figure things out. Um, you can figure out how a watch works, but figuring out how people works is much more difficult. There is another way of reasoning, and it's really uh, in the, in the uh, gospel and in uh, Catholic theology, and that's the analogical way of reasoning. It's going beyond what the analytic is or the dialectic, or the way our head spins, and thinking this is what it's like. To be like God is, that's analogical reasoning. It's what runs through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, to be blessed, that, to be in union with God, because this is what blessedness is. You can't separate it from God. Poor in spirit, detachment, to mourn, to be meek, to be merciful, um, to be persecuted because you're doing the right thing, to rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Um, to be, uh, to be wronged and still forgive. You could, I suppose, come up with some kind of reasoning why that makes sense, but ultimately the only way that it fulfills you holistically um, is because you think it helps you because Jesus tells us it helps us participate in the life of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, that we're blessed. So what happens if you orient the other way? What happens if you just try to figure things out on your own and you're going to get the right consumer products, the right relationship, you have the right health care plan? Well, it's, you're just staring into the abyss. I love reading Walker Percy. He wrote this great book several decades ago, but it's still worth reading, called Signposts in a Strange Land. And he, what he does is he compares Catholic spirituality to psychiatry. And a psychiatrist, because Dr. Percy was actually trained as a psychiatrist, so he loves talking about psychiatry and psychology as uh, trying to replace uh, spirituality, this analogical reasoning about how it is that you focus and think about how you can participate in divine life. But here's what he says about psychiatry. He says, there's something curiously vague about psychiatrists. He's talking about Eric Fromm's normative goals as compared with the concrete picture of man's plight. The goal of life, according to psychology, is to live productively. That sounds very much like a mental hygiene recommendation, that the goal of life is to achieve emotional maturity, that the secret of Socrates, Jesus, and Buddha was that they achieved emotional maturity. Well, now this may be true in a weird, abstract fashion, Although to characterize Jesus, who said, I am the way, as a psychologist of emotional maturity, that Jesus wants you to have emotional maturity, uh, is to say the least a very strange description of Jesus. 
But what of the alienated human being, the man, the woman of the 21st century, who reads this vast library of popular mental hygiene, self-help, and dutifully sets out in the quest for emotional maturity, productive orientation, cultural orient integration, and such like. You might as well throw in there uh, to try to be happy on the terms the world offers. To the degree that that man or woman stakes everything on a goal isolated by the scientific method, that is, psychiatry and psychology, that same degree, it is destined, that man and woman is destined to despair. Somewhere there has occurred a fatal misplacement of the real, that our reality can't be explained just through science or analysis. To hold out to a man lost in the abyss of anxiety and anonymity, the solution of being productive is like telling a man who's fallen into a pit that the answer to his troubles is to be pitless, to pitless orientation. Be productive in the pit, it's like saying being productive um, in a world that you can't escape from. That was from his essay, The Coming Crisis in Psychiatry. He went on to say, God is absent from this world, said jo Johann Christian Holderlin. God is dead, said Friedrich Nietzsche. This means one of two things, Percy says. Either we have outgrown monotheism and good riddance, or modern man is very estranged from being, from his own being, from the being of other creatures in the world, from transcendent being. He has lost something. He is lost. What he does not know, he knows only that he is sick unto death with the loss of it, a despair ending only in death. And so that's the problem of the Old Testament and why it is Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing us a way out. Isn't it ironic that it's about poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, being persecuted, that all of the things that the world throws at us if we encounter them with Christ, they become the way out of the pit. There's something to think about. See you next week on Oro Valley Catholic.